I mean, if you would turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We uh, got to the halfway point of our study in Luke's gospel last week. Uh, I'll be out next Sunday preaching at the church I grew up in. So I'd appreciate your prayers for that. Michael will be preaching here. And then the next Sunday we will begin a new series uh, just to give us a break from Luke, but also to uh, really hopefully encourage us and teach us and help us to understand what it looks like to be a maturing believer. So we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm excited about what we're going to see there over the next couple of months, and then we'll return to Luke and finish him out uh, as we enter into the new year together. This morning I want us to be in Acts chapter 2 because we've been out here for a while and we need to be reminded as a church of what our vision is, what our mission is as a church. And, and that vision and that mission is rooted in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Now some of you that have been around for a while may be wondering why are we going back here? We've heard this preached. There's a big banner hanging in the hallway in there that that kind of outlines our vision, outlines our mission. Why are we going back here? Well, we're going back here, number one, because there's several of you here who haven't heard the vision, haven't heard the mission. You've come into the fellowship here uh, since we've been meeting outside, since we've last looked at Acts chapter 2 together. So one reason is some of you need to know who we are and who we're striving to be as a church. The other reason, for those of us that have been around for a while, is that we don't do very well at remembering and sometimes when we see a vision or a mission or hear a sermon like Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we have a tendency to think, well, the church pastors are going to give us some kind of program or some kind of strategy in order to help us become an Acts chapter 2 type of church. And we're not, we're not trying to formulate a program. Uh, we're not trying to formulate a top-down kind of strategy here. What we're looking for is a it's is a, a culture to develop in our congregation that looks more like Acts chapter 2. So we're looking for a culture to develop. And if a culture is going to develop, that doesn't happen because we put together a program. A culture develops when you as an individual, not you as a congregation, but you as an individual, become an Acts chapter 2 Christian. So we're going to get a snapshot of what you as an individual need to look like if we're going to see our church pick up a culture of Acts chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 42 to 47. And there's seven things that I want us to see. And we're going to try to move through them quickly this morning. Seven things that characterized that early church. The first thing we see in, the, in verse number 42. And it is this. They were maturing in the word. They were a church that was maturing in the word. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church was devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The early church was devoted to the teaching of of the apostles and that teaching of the disciples that teaching of the apostles is what would become our new testament today 
So when we want to be a, a church like Acts chapter 2, and we want to be a church that's maturing in the Word, we need to be a church that's rooted and grounded in the Scriptures, a church that is rooted and grounded in the New Testament. And don't think that this changed, because if you fast forward in church history to 1 Timothy chapter 4, here's what you find the Apostle Paul telling Timothy, his son in the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Until I come, give attention to... The public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, I know we live in a day and a time where it seems like pastors need to be paying attention to things like how you dress. We need to pay attention to the lights on the platform. We need to pay attention to how much smoke billows out of the smoke creators. We need to pay attention to how awesome our music can be. We need to pay attention to how attractive we can be to the world around us, to the culture around us. But Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, says very clearly, the thing, Timothy, you as a pastor need to pay close attention to is the Word of God. You need to read the Scriptures publicly. You need to exhort the Scriptures. You need to teach the Scriptures. You need to devote yourself to that in every context. Immerse yourself in this, Timothy. Progress in this, Timothy. Persist in this, Timothy, for the sake of the souls under your hearing. I cannot overstate this enough, First Baptist Church. We have to root and ground everything we do, not in popular culture and ideas and programs, but in the Word of the living God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate. How am I adequate? How is the man of God adequate? How is the teacher and preacher of the Word of God adequate? It's through Scripture. The Scripture makes the man of God adequate. And he goes on, equipped for every good work. If we're going to be adequate, and if we're going to be equipped for everything God has for us, we have to go back to the Scriptures. And I know we all nod, and we all say amen, and we all say, yes, you're right, you're right, you're right, until we come up with something that is absolutely extra-biblical outside of Scripture that we think is a really good idea and that will quote-unquote work. Then all of a sudden, you know, we can, we can maneuver the Scriptures around to fit that. We can twist the Scriptures around to fit my good idea. We need to read, exhort, and teach the Scriptures. And further people along in the Scriptures. And I'm going to tell you, it's on us partially as leadership to be sure we give you the Scriptures week after week as we gather together. But it's also on you to open your Bible and to read the Scriptures on your own and to hear from the Holy Spirit on your own and to start shaping your life and your family, and your view of church around the Scriptures. It's not just on us, it's on you. If we're going to have a culture that looks like Acts chapter 2, we need to be maturing in the Word. Secondly, 
The second thing that characterized that Acts chapter 2 church was meaningful fellowship. If you read on in verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. The scriptures were not all that they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to each other. They broke bread together. They were in their homes together. They were eating together. You have to think about this Acts chapter 2 church. They had likely been rejected by their friends. They had likely been rejected by their families. And they were in great need of support from their newfound family. Remember just last week in Luke 12, verses 51 to 53, we read read Jesus warning his disciples, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus says there's going to be division. And now in Acts chapter 2, this early church has been formed and they have likely been rejected by their friends. They've likely been rejected by their family and they're in great need of support from their newfound family and they found it. They found it. Jesus had promised in Mark chapter 10, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. They, They have been rejected And they had found new family. And the words one another are used roughly 151 times in the Bible. And there's a reason for that. We need one another in our Christian walk. That's one of the reasons that we fought tooth and nail not to ever go completely online. We are thankful that we have that avenue. We're thankful that those who feel compromised and feel as though they cannot leave their homes, can join us online. We're thankful for that. But we were never, ever comfortable, happy about thinking about the possibility of not gathering together. And there's a reason for that. Because we don't need to just be characterized by maturing in the Word. We need to be characterized by meaningful fellowship. Let us never take for granted the fellowship of the believers. And let me tell you, that's on you too. You have to make the determination to get up out of bed You have to make the determination to come to this place. You have to make the determination to put forth the effort to gather together, to fellowship together, to get together during the week in smaller groups. You have to make that effort if there's going to be a culture of Acts chapter 2. Thirdly, they were characterized by making supplication. Verse 42 again, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, maturing in the word, and to fellowship meaningful fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to what? Prayer. Making supplication. Acts chapter 2 church was birthed in a prayer meeting. They were in the upper room. They were praying, calling on the name of the Lord, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and filled them, and they spoke in multiple languages so that all those who had gathered in Jerusalem that they heard them speaking in their own language. They heard the gospel message. They came together and they heard Peter preach the gospel. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, to repent, put your trust, be baptized and come together. And they did. And thousands of people came to faith. 
in that early church out of a prayer movement. The focus was the same decades later. You go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Paul is again giving directions to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he says to him, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Even decades later, Paul is telling Timothy, be a church of prayer. Be a people of prayer. Let prayer permeate every part of the church, which means we as individuals need to be people of prayer. You do not have to have the staff schedule a special prayer meeting to be a people of prayer. You can pray in your discipleship groups. You can pray alone. You can pray in your small groups. You can pray when you get together in hospitality. You can pray anywhere and everywhere. And you as an individual can become a person of prayer and therefore help develop a culture of prayer in the church without us saying, here's the time and here's the place where it happens once a week. It's on you. And let me just, let me just say this. And this is, this is going to be, uh, this might possibly get me an email or a phone call, but I'm going to say it because we need to hear this in, in the American church of the Bible Belt as I'm looking out at people who mainly have sat under preaching and been in church for decades, decades. If you need someone to hold your hand if you need someone to baby you to be in the Word and to be in fellowship and to be in prayer, that is a ginormous problem because we have had more resources at our disposal here in America. We've had more preachers, more churches on every corner than anywhere else on the globe. And if we still need somebody to hold our hand and baby us along in these very simple things, we have some major issues that we need to deal with right now. And we need to grow up Put on our big boy pants, our big girl pants. And be what the Bible calls us to be as Christians. Stop acting like your own milk. If you've been under the word for this long, you're no, you should no longer be on milk. We need to be maturing in the word. We need to be experiencing meaningful fellowship. We need to be making supplication. And we ought not to have to have a pastor to hold our hand to do those simple things. A fourth thing that characterized this early church was miracles performed. Verse 43 says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. You know, and a lot of our discussions of Acts chapter 2 in the modern day church, we just kind of hop over verse 43 and we want to move on to ministry because, you know, we don't do miracles. We don't do miracles. You're right. We don't do miracles. There's not a soul on earth that I believe does miracles. 
But I'll tell you somebody that does do miracles. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is still working. And because maybe because we don't see him as active here, we think he's hung up his hat, so to speak. But around the globe, Jesus is working. And he's doing things that we can't understand and that we can't wrap our scientific, logical minds around. Jesus is still a miracle worker. And he has left us here on this earth to be his hands and his feet. And if we want to see miracles, it's going to take us, in a sense, becoming the miracle. I know you've heard me say this time and time again. But one of the reasons we don't see Jesus working is because we are not doing anything. We're not putting ourselves in places where he needs to work, where he has to work. We're keeping it safe. You know, we gather here together. We, we do our thing. We put some money in the plate. We have a good time. We go home. Nothing risky there. I mean, if we're honest, we could pull off most of what we do without the help of the Holy Spirit. If we want to see miracles, we've got to be willing to take risks. Foolish risk in the eyes of the world. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is giving a parable of the sheep and the goats. And I know we've covered this multiple times, so I'll keep it brief. But he, he says to the sheep, you saw me hungry. You gave me something to eat. You saw me thirsty. You gave me something to drink. You saw me naked. You clothed me. You saw your home. You saw me without a home, and you brought me in. You saw me sick, and you came and visited me. You saw me in prison, and you came to see me. And they said, when do we see all of this, Jesus? And he said, as much as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. To the goats, he says the exact opposite. I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was sick and you didn't come visit me. Well, when did we see all that? And as much as you didn't do it under one of the least of these, you didn't do it under me. And I want to ask a question. Where are the least of these? Where are the least of these? And I know our minds may go to people we see holding signs up on the corners. And I don't want to minimize that need there to share the gospel with those people. But if you're flipping a cell phone open, if you're camping out behind the ministry center to plug in your cell phone, and there's a food, there's food available in every corner, and there's a government stepping in to take care of you at every turn, that's not the least of these people. A lot of the folks that we see that we call needy here would be in the top tier of some countries around the globe. Where's really the least of these? You think about thousands and thousands of children starving to death every day. Thousands and thousands of children dying of preventable diseases every day. People being flushed out of their homes due to persecution and their homes burned and not being able to find work because of their faith in Jesus. Where are the least of these? We need to see the crowds and we need to become the miracle in people's lives. I understand that things have changed. We can't travel as freely at this moment. But we need to be thinking about how are we going to be the miracle in the lives of those who most need it. Both here and globally. 
Fifthly, ministry to the body. This church was characterized by ministry to the body. Verse 44 to 46, And all those who have believed, these are Christians, all those who have believed, were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and simplicity of heart. They, they gathered together. They were, some of them were needy. Some of them had been rejected by friends. Some of them had been rejected by family. Some of them likely had lost family businesses. Some of them likely had lost their homes. And they were distributing to those among the fellowship that needed it. It's still happening in Acts chapter 4. Verses 32 to 35, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Don't think for a moment this is talking about socialism and the government stepping in to steal from your paycheck to give to folks who don't work. This is a picture of the church body gathering together and seeing one another's needs and willingly and joyfully meeting those needs. When I was pastor of the church plant, we had people stop by often because we had a food bank in the in the place we met, and they would stop by often wanting something. And my first question to them, and we shouldn't emulate this here, my first question to them was, where do you attend church? Where do you regularly go to church? Because if you regularly are plugged into a church body, I can promise you that if that church is worth its salt, it will take care of you. And if you're not part of a church family, I want you to know that one of the benefits of being part of the family of God and part of a church is that we help each other. So our first obligation is to the body. Our first obligation is meeting the needs of the body. And we need to talk to you about becoming part of the body. It's ministry to, to the brethren that comes first and foremost. And we see that in this early church. They're ministering to each other. They're meeting one another's needs. Imagine what a testimony to the world it would be if they saw us caring for those within our bodies so graciously and so generously. Number six, they were magnifying God in verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. What does it mean to praise God? What does it mean to worship God? The first thing that may come to mind is singing. And singing is important. We said multiple times as we were in the search for a worship pastor that we would find someone who sought to glorify God, exalt Christ, and be thoroughly biblical in the songs he chose. That's definitely a part of praising God. That's definitely part of worship. And we do that. If you don't do that when you gather here with Sing hallelujah. <laughs> Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever. Christ, our hope in life and death. If you don't worship that, that's not on this group up here. 
That's on you. Well, I just don't care for the drums. That's, that's, that's on you. We're singing words to Jesus. I don't like the guitar. I don't like the bass. I don't like the, the, the praise team. I don't like... That's on you. We're singing to Jesus. We're not worshiping you. We're worshiping Jesus. And part of that is singing words that are God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and scripturally saturated. But that's not all worship is. That's an expression of worship. If we want to know what worship is, we need to go back to the first time worship is used in the Bible. Do you know the first time worship is used in the Bible? The first time worship is used in the Bible is in a very odd place. It's back in Genesis chapter 22, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story. You may remember it. You may know it. In Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abraham, and he has his one and only son, Isaac, his son of promise, and he tells Abraham to take Isaac and to carry him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham takes his son Isaac and his servants, and he loads the donkey, and they begin to make their way to the mountain. And when they come to the place in the mountain where he and Isaac are to go, and, and Abraham is to offer Isaac as his sacrifice, Abraham says something to his servants. He says, you stay here. I and the boy will go up there, and we will worship. And in Abraham's mind, when he says we're going to worship, he's saying, I'm going to lay down what I love most. I'm going to lay down my hope for the future. I'm going to lay down my dreams. I'm going to lay down my inheritance. I'm going to lay down everything on this altar, and I'm going to sacrifice it to God. And you know that God stopped him from sacrificing Isaac. He tested him there on the mountain. Abraham passed the test. God provided a lamb to take the place of Isaac. And they came down the mountain rejoicing. And I want us to jump forward to Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2 where the Bible says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of what? Worship. You want to know what worship is? Whether you're singing, preaching, listening, praying, serving, ministering, whatever it is, you are offering your body a living sacrifice to our God. How do you do that? He goes on. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this age. First John tells us that we should not love the world nor the things in the world. I need to say that again. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle John, is telling us as 21st century believers that we should not love the world or the things in the world. He didn't say don't love part of the world or those things in the world. He says don't love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You want to be a living sacrifice? Don't be conformed to this age. Don't fall in love with this world or the things in this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self 
which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed in your mind and be transformed by the power of God working through His Scripture. Lastly, the seventh thing that characterized that church was evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. In verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascended into heaven, He said, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. In this early church, they began to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and people began to come to faith and the church began to be formed and they bogged down in Jerusalem and they didn't get into Judea. They did not get into Samaria and they definitely didn't get to the ends of the earth. They bogged down in Jerusalem and Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 had to become Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 in order for them to obey the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, at the hands of Saul, a great persecution broke out on the church in Jerusalem and the people were scattered. The people were scattered into Judea and into Samaria. There's a lesson for us. If we get, if we get good at evangelism and disciple making and we don't move forward in missions, Acts 1.8 will turn into Acts 8.1 to push us out of our comfort zones and get us to where we need to be. And then by Acts chapter 13... We see them moving beyond Judea and Samaria and calling out Barnabas and Saul to be sent out to what they knew of as the ends of the earth. We need to be a church characterized by evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. And again, this is on you. This isn't top-down. This isn't let's put together a program. This is for you as individuals to embrace you as individuals, to grasp. And if you can't go, then you send. If you can't go, then you send. Praying and giving, sending out those who can't go. Now as we think about these seven qualities... These seven characteristics. You might feel a little bit overwhelmed. You might feel a little bit bogged down. You may feel like you, you fed from a fire hose this morning. But you don't have to be. I've said it before and we're going to say it again. We have a bullseye. We have a bullseye, a target that we can aim at. And that target is evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. And if we aim at that target, if we make that our bullseye, then get this. The other six elements that we've covered will take care of themselves. If we put our energy into evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, we will dig into the Word like never before. If we put our effort into evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, we will get into the Scriptures. 
And we will mature in the Word of God. If we devote ourselves to evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, we will experience fellowship like never before. If we devote ourselves to evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, we will be driven to our knees to pray. If we devote ourselves to evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, we will see miracles happen in the hearts and in the lives of people from here to the ends of the earth. If we devote ourselves to evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, we will minister to one another. We will hold one another's hands. We will take care of one another as we serve on the front lines advancing the gospel. As we pursue evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, we will be bringing glory and honor to His name as we lay down our lives as a willing sacrifice. Listen. If we, will, if we will pursue Acts 1.8, if we will pursue Acts 1.8 by either going and or sending with all of our energy, if we'll pursue Acts 1.8, we'll become Acts 2. One of the things we've tried to do over the last month or two during this time of, of strangeness as a church which is becoming the norm, it seems. We introduced you through a few videos to three books that we wanted you as an individual, you as a family, you as a discipleship group, are you taking the initiative? We don't have to call you and say, hey, would you mind doing this? Here's some people that we can give you to do this with. Let me just hand you it. No, no. We invited you to get a burden and a desire to recenter as a church. And we ask you to gather together as discipleship groups, as families, or as couples in your homes and walk through these three books together and they just happen to be called Evangelism, Discipling, and Missions. And read through those books together as groups. And we have multiple groups all over this church that are meeting right now doing this very thing. And if you're not in one of those groups, we want to invite you to get these three books, Evangelism by Max Stiles, one of the best books on evangelism that I've read, Creating a Culture of Evangelism in the Church, Discipling by Mark Dever, to simplify our view of discipleship groups, to be walking people towards Jesus, and then Missions by Andy Johnson. As we look at how our church is part of the mission of God, I want to encourage you to look at these three books. Grab these three books if you're not already reading them, and it will help you zero in on this bullseye that we have put before us. And as we as individuals pursue this bullseye, as we as individuals pursue this target in our lives, if we become Acts 1-8 Christians in our lives, we'll become Acts 2 people in our church, and our church will begin to look more like that early church than it does today. We want to be a church that matures in the Word, that experiences meaningful fellowship, making supplication, miracles, ministry to the body, magnifying His name, and evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. We want to be a church that proclaims the gospel in all that we do. We want to be a church that proclaims the gospel in all that we do. There's two ways beyond preaching on Sunday that we can proclaim the gospel. One of those is through communion or the Lord's Supper. And the other is through baptism. And we're going to experience both of those this morning. We're going to begin our time with communion. And I want you to think about what communion means. As you pull out this little cup that you should have received at the beginning of the service, communion 
number one, the Lord's Supper, number one, helps us to remember. And we remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But not only do we remember, but Jesus said, as often as you do this, you proclaim. So we remember the gospel and we proclaim the gospel. We are literally acting out the gospel before those around us. So if you know Jesus this morning, if you are born again this morning, I want to invite you to take this little, this little cup and there is a small tab on the top that will unveil a small wafer in the top. It's just a little plastic piece. If you will peel that back and take that round wafer out at the very top of this cup, you shouldn't see juice yet, just the wafer. I want you to take that out and I want you to look at it and I want you to hold it where those around you can see it. And I want us all to think on and remember and realize that this little piece of bread represents the life of the Lord Jesus Christ where He, one with the Father, and the exact image and representation of God the Father stepped out of heaven and humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant being obedient to death, even death on a cross for your sin, for my sin, so that we can be redeemed and so that we can be seen as righteous in the eyes of God so that we can have no condemnation because of Christ Jesus. He lived this life for us. And we remember and proclaim that life today. Jesus said that this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread, who receives the life of Christ, will live forever. If you tear that next tab open, you'll find juice. We Baptists like to call it wine, but it's juice. And it represents what Jesus served at that Last Supper and told His disciples was His blood, represented His blood. So as you open that cup, you hold it up and you remember and you proclaim to those around you that not only did Jesus live the life that God required of us, but He went to the cross and there on the cross He shed His blood. Not only so that we could be made righteous, but so that our sin debt could be paid in full and could be washed away. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin and in first john we read that the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from all our sin through communion we remember the gospel through communion we proclaim the gospel and in just a few moments we're going to see the other way that we can proclaim the gospel and profess the gospel together and that's through baptism as we turn our attention to the baptistry let's go or to the fountain which is the baptistry let's go to the Lord together in prayer Father we thank you for that early church that we can look to we thank you for the example they were for us and I pray that we wouldn't just wait to grasp that corporately but we as individuals would strive to be Acts chapter 2, Christians maturing in the Word, experiencing meaningful fellowship with one another, making supplications, seeing miracles happen, ministering to the body, magnifying the name of Jesus, and aiming our lives and our families at evangelism, disciple-making, and missions as best we can.
as we remember your shed blood, as we remember your life through this bread and through this juice, God, I pray that you would help us not only reflect upon what you've done for us, but for those around us who've seen this exemplified, I pray that you've spoken to their heart and shown them that forgiveness can be found in the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now as we turn our attention to the fountain and we experience baptism together, I pray, God, that as we see these profess faith publicly, we pray that others would see the gospel proclaimed as they symbolize them being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.